I don't need to be defined by putting myself in a box labeled Christian, Catholic, or Muslim, wrote one New York City author. When I die, all my accounting will be done to God, and when I enter the eternal realms, I will not walk through a door that has a label over it. According to a poll released just this past week, 81% of Americans believe in God. That's not a low number. And yet, as you peel back the onion, of those 81%, the quote that I just read represents the fastest growing segment, almost a third, who call themselves the spiritual but not religious. The unifying belief, as stated on a website, spiritualbutnotreligious.org, is this, sbnr.org. It says right at the top of the website in a banner, quote, All religions contain some wisdom, but no one religion contains all wisdom. And so the idea is to, to cut the mooring lines, to free yourself from traditional religion, because God's truth, it's not located in any one place or any, under any one name. God's truth, it's sprinkled everywhere. And it's up to you to discern and decide and discover for yourself. Well, how did this happen? Well, simply, in a postmodern society as we live in, where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, the idea that there could be a one-stop shop for all your spiritual needs, that idea is simply laughable. That all truth could be contained in one place under one name to our world today is frankly, that's the height of arrogance. And so where has this left us then? Well, we're free supposedly to define God for ourselves. It's kind of like religion and Burger King Merged together, and now you can have God your way. Are you, you want the health and wealth God? You want the list-demanding, rule-demanding God? You want the everyone-goes-to-heaven God? Well, just have him your way. Make him up. It would be a clever idea, except for one obvious problem, namely this. That a God made in your own image is what? It's an imaginary God. It's fiction. It's false hope. It leads to ruin. Well, the good news this morning, though, is that the true God, the one true God, he is far too good. He is far too loving to lead, leave us just aimlessly inventing aimlessly inventing our own answers. He doesn't leave us scratching our heads. God tells us where truth is this morning. He tells us where life is. In fact, this entire letter to the Colossians that we've been studying is just screaming out, Jesus. Where do you find God? You find him at Jesus fully. And so by way of context thinking, where, where have we been? Well, the Colossian church, the, the recipients of this letter that we're studying this summer, they actually lived in a similar atmosphere as we do. There's truly nothing new under the sun. The Colossian church, they were being influenced by false teachers who were telling them to lighten up a little bit about that Jesus. 
Sure, Jesus, he's got some good things going for him. We're, we're all for Jesus. You may have heard this before. But Jesus, he's only part of the truth. You narrow-minded Christian, it's a big world. You need to get some perspective. There's more to knowing God than Jesus. That was the claim then. And friends, that's the claim still today. There's nothing new. As one author said, the Colossian heresy, quote, it did not deny Christ, but it did dethrone Christ. It gave him a place, but not the supreme place. Well, this morning, this text that we're going to study, it calls us to put Jesus in his proper place, the supreme place, his rightful place. Spiritual fullness, Paul will show us, it doesn't come via man-made religion. It comes by a relationship, an exclusive relationship with this Jesus Christ. And so our main point this morning is that there's no shortcuts to spiritual maturity, spirituality. Pursue Jesus alone, growing and guarding your faith by a continual gaze at his gospel. We're going to see three points this morning. Namely, because Jesus is the sole source of spiritual life, the first point is this, to never quit, but grow in deeper devotion to Christ. Never quit. Our passage this morning, it it has offense, it has defense, and it even has a strategy. The question is, how do we keep our faith centered on Jesus? Now, verses 6 six and 7, they're, they're like the offense. Look at verse 6. We read in verse 6, Colossians 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. That is the first command of this letter. If you look at chapter 1 through 2, 5, where we've been, that's 34 verses, and there are zero commands. Now in our passage today, 6 through 15, there's two commands. And after this, the rest of the book of Colossians has some 43 commands. And so understand, our text today, this passage, it begins a transition. Think of this passage today like a hinge. It's swinging us from what we've learned about Jesus to how we should live in light of Jesus. And this first command of the book is so direct and so central to the the whole argument of this book, namely, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The same way you began. Remember how you began. Keep going that direction. Well, how did the Colossians begin? Well, you can look back at chapter 1, verse 6. There Paul rejoiced because he said the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, the Colossians, since, you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You see, when the Colossians came to faith in Christ, they went all in. Like all the chips went in. Like the man in Jesus' parable who found that treasure in a field. He then went and sold everything he had to buy that field. He didn't diversify. He went all in. The Colossians had turned away from everything else to follow Jesus. 
And the word received in verse 6, this word really illustrates, really bears this truth out. It's an intimate word. The word means literally to take one to, take one to your side, to take to one side. This is an intimate word. This is the word you would use for something that you're just latched onto. And I joke with the teenagers, this is, this is like them and their phones. They're just latched onto it. They, they, can't, they can't let go of it. This is like your kids and my kids. You give them a toy in that first hour of that toy's existence, and then they're just latched onto it. After that, you know, doesn't matter anymore. Who cares? But that first hour, they just can't imagine life without it. That's how the Colossians held on to Christ when they first received him. And notice this, the Colossians received him as Lord. Jesus wasn't their heavenly helpline. He wasn't some man upstairs who you call on when you need something. Jesus wasn't fire insurance. He, he wasn't just merely this ticket that gets you out of hell. He wasn't their divine life coach giving your seven spiritual tips for surviving vacation with the in-laws this summer. No, Jesus was, was Lord. They received him as God. And that's the only way Jesus is to be received as Lord. And understand, that was a, a dangerous thing to call someone in the Roman Empire. You call someone other than Caesar Lord, you're making a bold and risky claim. And yet that's how these believers had initially received Christ. And so Paul urges them to keep going, to stick with Christ. Don't be swayed. Go on to maturity. You see, we need to understand this, that receiving Christ as Lord, if you have done that, if you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord, that's not the end of the Christian life. That is just the beginning. You see, too often I find myself, and you might find yourself, maybe living off the, the fading embers of a past faith, this fire that you used to have for God. And sometimes we even try to soothe our, our present spiritual apathy by reminding God and reminding ourselves of how much we used to love him. You, you know, back when I was on that missions trip, back when I taught that Bible class, back when I was in college, you know, before there was work, <laughs> before there were bills and kids and all of these things. But, you know, I was on fire then for God, but now life is hard. But God, I loved you back then. Isn't that enough, God? I mean, imagine telling your wife that. You know, honey, remember when I used to love you? Well, isn't that good enough? Isn't that great? No, says Paul. Of course, you, you needed Jesus yesterday. Of course you did. But you need Jesus today, and I want you to understand that when real life happens, your need for Jesus isn't diminished, it's exposed. It's because you're busy. It's because there's temptation. It's because there's false teaching. It's because there's tragedy in this life. It's because fill in the blank, that's the reason why you need him. That's why you must continue. We need his grace daily. In our lives. You see, the true Christian never graduates from Christ as if there's some greater degree that you get beyond Him. 
And so Paul charges the Colossians. He calls them to do what? To go deeper. In every area of your life, increasingly follow this Jesus who is Lord as your Lord. He says, walk in him, verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, Paul illustrates his command here using the imagery of a plant and a building. You see, the rooting in the faith, according to Paul, this has already happened. Now, now the ESV, which I'm reading, it doesn't really bring the full sense of that out. But if you're reading the New American Standard or the Legacy Standard translation, you, you'll get a better sense of that word rooted. Uh, those translations say, having been firmly rooted, having been firmly rooted. You see, as we've already seen, the Colossians already have their roots in Christ. And yet, nevertheless, why do you dig that, that hole when you're planting a tree? Why do you dig it bigger than the root ball? Why do you send your kids out on hot summer days to go water it? You do it so that those roots will grow, namely so that by the roots growing down, what happens to the tree? It grows up and it grows out. Paul's saying, walk in him, having been firmly rooted, but then he switches tense, presently being built up in him and established in the faith. Paul's calling them and you and I to continual growth. And notice that growth happens. The key two little words to this entire passage are in him. You see, the Christian life is not just a one-time sprint to Jesus. It's a marathon. It is a continual abiding in Christ daily. It's a daily picking up the Bible. It's a daily sitting down to pray. It's serving other believers. It's weekly gathering with the saints. It's building your life around the church and not the church around your life. That's how we grow as Christians. There are no shortcuts. As one pastor said, he said, outside of Christ, there is no spiritual get-rich-quick scheme. You see, spiritual maturity happens by a steady faithfulness to Jesus. There's no leap from infancy, to ch- from infancy to adulthood. There's no special teaching like the Colossians were being influenced to embrace. There's no spiritual hack to Christianity. How do you grow as a Christian? It's just by a steady, daily, continual looking to Christ. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And I want to be sure to say this before we leave this point, that this morning... Whoever you are, wherever you are in your walk with Christ, if you are here this morning, if your heart is beating, it's not too late for you to receive him. It's not too late for you to begin walking with Christ, to start following him. And so ignore those voices, perhaps even in your own heart this morning, saying that you can shrug off Christ, that you can just do you. You can live for other things and yet somehow still know God. That is a lie that leads to ruin. Paul says to these believers, don't quit, but just only grow deeper in devotion to Christ. Well, secondly, Paul tells them to never sleep, but to guard against deceptive doctrine. 
Verse 8. Verse 8 begins, see to it. Now, now this is defense now. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You see, as we've seen in this letter already, Paul combats error. He is combating error. But how does he do it? He doesn't combat error by concentrating on the error, but normally by clarifying the truth. That's his usual way. You see, the Holy Spirit understands that the Colossians wouldn't be the last ones to fight deceptive doctrines. The battles over time, they may change, but the answers have stayed the same. The overwhelming focus of the book of Colossians is just to saturate us with the truth. And nevertheless, there is some description in verse 8 of what we are to guard against. Look at verse 8. We read this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. See to it. Keep your eyes open. Be aware. Don't become enslaved. Don't become carried off as a prisoner to this empty, dishonest philosophy. The Greeks, they greatly esteemed philosophy. The word philosophy just means the love of wisdom. Philosophy, in essence, is man's attempt to explain the world around him through human reasoning and knowledge. And particularly in Paul's day, the philosophers, these were the, these were the wise, the studious, these were the unquestionable sources of authority in that day. They were the experts, they were the PhDs that we have today. Now if you look down to verse 23 though, Colossians 2.23... Scan your eyes down and see what Paul concludes about this philosophy. Paul ultimately concludes that this philosophy has, quote, only an appearance of wisdom. It's all a show. This philosophy is man-made, it's man-centered, and it's only impressive to man. It is simply a charade of wisdom. And in verse 8, note this, we're given two marks of empty philosophy or deceptive doctrine, namely these, that they rest on a false authority and a flawed foundation. Paul's going to give us these two marks. The first is a false authority. Paul labels this empty teaching as according to human tradition. Now, tradition can be helpful. I don't think anyone would argue against that. But tradition can also be dangerous. It's true. You see, to the Colossians, an appeal was being made to add traditions, many of them Jewish in nature, to their faith in Christ. And tradition is really is a powerful argument. It's, it's hard to argue against someone who says, dude, we've always done it this way. Who are you to change it? That statement holds weight. It's always been done like this. This is how it's been for years. The trouble is, though, when allegiance to tradition becomes a substitute or a higher authority to God's word itself. Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 15, he said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
You see, for the Pharisees, their man-made traditions, literally hundreds of man-made additions to God's word, those didn't clarify the truth. They actually clouded the truth and even caused them to be led astray from the truth. And understand, this still continues today. During the Reformation, for example, the Roman Catholic Church had a clear choice. In 1546, the Council of Trent of the Roman Catholic Church, they met to debate this very question. Is the Bible greater than or equal to tradition? Well, the Catholic Church said that the Bible is equal to tradition, thus they formally elevated human tradition. The very thing Paul is calling us to guard against, they elevated to the the level of Scripture. And this is heartbreaking because you don't go against God's word without consequences. Still today, untold millions around this world, they are stuck in a system that masquerades itself as Christianity. They're living in fear of this thing called purgatory. They're spending dollars on these things called indulgences. And worst of all, they gather to believe a false gospel that re-sacrifices Jesus at every Mass. All that when there's not one shred of a Bible verse to support any of those beliefs. You see, tradition can be dangerous. And yet, even us, Bible-believing saints that we are, we're not above this. Our worship of God, even if everything we do is based on his word, our worship can still turn into nothing but a ritual. Sundays can just be going through the motions. Our prayers can just become repetitive words and phrases. We all need to be on guard in our hearts in this area. Secondly, is that these false teachings rested on a flawed foundation. So in addition to a false authority tradition, this empty philosophy rested on a flawed foundation. The the next phrase, at least in the ESV, says this. Paul says, according to the elemental spirits of the world. According to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, now much ink has been spilled about this phrase, believe me, and and I'm going to try to not spill it all on you, but there... (laughs) There is one word in the original language that is being translated here either as elemental spirits, that's the ESV, or elementary principles, that's the NASB or LSB, and there's even others too. But you will notice, even if you're reading the ESV like I am, there's a footnote at the bottom of the page saying, or elementary principles. So, The point is, it's difficult to translate, and there's basically two options. Now, let me put those two options to you in a question so you can see the difference. Is the Colossian error inspired by some evil spiritual forces in the world, or is it based on the fallen principles or the fallen thinking of this world? Are spiritual forces behind this or the fallen human mind? That's the question. And here's my best Rich Ryan impersonation. What is the answer? Yes. <laughs> he, he was here first service to really soak that in. 
Both demons and fallen thinking are at work now. To see why that is so, we need to to dive in a little bit, and I want to be clear. I want to be clear up front. I believe this should be translated elementary principles or basic teachings of the world, and I'll come back to why I said yes in a little bit. But look at Colossians 2, verse 20. I'm going to save most of this for next week when Brother Turner is going to preach on this. But look at Colossians 2, verse 20. That word is used again. That phrase is used again. And there it clearly connects these elements to the regulations or the basic teachings that the Colossians are being called to avoid. There's no mention of spiritual forces or demons or anything like that. The Colossians are being called to avoid and flee from this basic teaching, these regulations being imposed on them. And so I believe that it should be elementary principles. In fact, the word being translated on its own, understand this, it simply just means elements. It just means elements. Elements as in the basic building blocks of a system. In Paul's day, this word often referred to the letters of the alphabet, which are, what are the letters of the alphabet? They're just the basic building blocks of language. They're they're, they're like the ABCs. Even today, we talk about the ABCs of cooking, or you want to learn the ABCs of real estate investing. Well, understand, in the same way, there are ABCs, there are basic principles to human thinking. There's a basic pattern, there's a basic logic that comes natural to this world. It's elementary, it's basic. Now let's work through an example. In your experience, do most people you meet believe that humanity is naturally and essentially good or bad? Good. Most people you meet will say that humanity is naturally good. And most people believe that we, because we are good, we deserve to go to heaven when we die. I have rarely met anyone who tells me they think they don't deserve heaven. And yet, strangely enough, that belief, that view, is the very opposite conclusion that God comes to in his word. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless or corrupt. No one does good, not even one. No one gets to heaven, in other words, because they were good, because no one is good. I mean, Jesus clearly said in Mark 10, 18, no one is good but God alone, and yet everyone believes we're good. You see, the sign of man-made religion is this, is that you can do it. It's up to you. Heaven isn't an undeserved gift in man-made religion. It is a merited reward. And why is it a reward? Because you did more good than bad. Because you tried your hardest, or at the very least, you weren't Hitler. So congratulations, you deserve heaven. Just, Just play nice, don't cheat, you'll end up in heaven. Well, the gospel, it couldn't be any more counterintuitive and countercultural than that. The gospel says this, you can't get into heaven. The gospel says you've broken God's law. Sure, humanly speaking, you may have done some good in your life, but how can that good cover your sin? Is that a valid argument in court? Judge, I confess I killed the man, but I also shoveled my neighbor's driveway last Christmas, and it was really cold that day. Can you please let me go? 
No way. God is holy. He's far more holy than any human judge. And the Bible is clear that the wages of sin is death. Our our sin earns us eternal separation from God. In other words, we are not good. We deserve the wrath of God. And I want you to understand this about the gospel. This is so important. You see, the gospel is the only message that's courageous enough to tell you your true condition because it's the only message powerful enough to rescue you from it. The gospel message is entirely contrary to the basic ways of human thinking. Now, before we move on, can we be saved? Can we get to heaven? Well, there's a verse, Ephesians 2, 4, that begins with these two words, but God. Have you ever thought that your eternity depends on those two words, but God? God did a work. God gave his son. Jesus died for sinners on the cross so that not so you could earn it, but so you could cry out to him for mercy and receive it as a gift. In other words, the Bible is not a message saying save yourself. The Bible is a message that says you need a savior and it's pointing to him, Jesus. Christian, even you and I are invaded with this basic thinking of the world. Where does the save yourself, where where does the man can save me mentality seep in to your life? Think about most of the movies that we watch. What's the plot line to most of the movies that we watch? It's simply this. Man saves man. Think about social media. What's that? It's people affirming people. And I'm I'm not calling all of these things bad, but we need to be on guard because too much of this Christless consumption, too much consuming of the world's elementary principles, it's teaching you a little lie, namely this, that there is a deliverer to your problems, and guess what? It's not God. It's another person. It's a pill. It's some possession that you don't have that you want. It might even be a politician, but it's not God. It's man saving man. That is the world's basic way of thinking. Now, let me back up. Why did I say yes? Why did I say yes that spiritual forces are also at work? Well, it's not because I think the word in verse 8 has to do specifically with that, but because there's a bigger truth that's looming in the context of this passage, namely this, that our fallen worldly way of thinking has someone else behind it. There is an enemy named Satan and his demons who are working and lying and deceiving you to keep you stuck in your fallen way of thinking. It's not just natural to you. It's Satan working in you and on you. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, The God of this world, that's referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. C.S. Lewis had it right when he said this, The more a man is in the devil's power, the less he will be aware of it. And so understanding all of what we just covered, where are we to turn then for truth? Well, we turn 
to the word of Christ, to Christ himself. Look at verse 9. Paul says those teachings, they're not according to Christ. But look at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul's entire point in this section and perhaps even this entire letter is summed up in this verse. If you have Jesus, you are complete. Jesus has all the fullness of deity dwelling in him. That is to say, Jesus is fully God. And so if you have Christ, you lack absolutely nothing. It's it's the formula that's been said many times. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The Colossians are complete. You are complete if you have Jesus Christ. You are spiritually filled up. You don't need human tradition. You don't need the world's self-help strategies. Jesus is the complete package. There's nothing missing. There's not a, a patch being released to fix all the bugs in Christianity. There's nothing to download. Remember what Paul said last week. He said all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden where? In Christ. And you have been filled in him already. Well, that's what we are being called to. Paul's saying we need to grow. He's saying we need to be as believers on guard. Okay, got it. Well, now we turn to how. Where do I focus to grow and guard my faith? Well, the answer, it couldn't be any more clear. It's the gospel. Paul says, never forget, gaze often at this death-delivering gospel. You see, you have to notice this. As you come to the final five verses in this passage, you have to notice and understand this. There are no more commands. There's there's not you being called to do anything in these last five verses. The call here in these final verses is to see and remember what only Jesus has already done. See, Paul knows that we can only grow and guard in as much as we gaze. And gaze at what? Gaze at Christ and what he did on your behalf. And so Paul gives four ways in in these last five verses. He gives four ways that Christ has worked on your behalf if you are a Christian. Understand, entirely apart from you, this is what Jesus has done for you if you're trusting him. The first one is this, that he's cleansed our hearts. Verse 11, he's cleansed our hearts. Verse 11 reads, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now this is interesting Because Paul, he's writing to a predominantly Gentile, physically uncircumcised audience. And look what Paul tells him. Imagine being told this. Hey, surprise, you also were circumcised. You're like, what? Okay, no, not physically, Paul's clear, but with a circumcision made without hands. Like, well, what's that about? Well, we have to backtrack to the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant between Abraham and the Israelites. And this covenant gets extended to Israel. 
And so they all have to circumcise their eight-day-old baby boys. Now, here's the question. What does cutting skin off a helpless eight-day-old baby boy, what is that intended to teach you? Well, circumcision basically taught the Israelites, and it teaches us that they had a problem. Understand, if an eight-day-old baby boy needs to have a part of him cut off, particularly on the part of him that reproduces more of him, that shows that there is a problem, and the problem is with people. And the problem happens as people keep passing along this problem to more people. And so circumcision is this sign, it's, it's this picture that there is a problem with people, and they keep passing it along to more people. Well, circumcision of the flesh even in the Old Testament then, it pointed to a greater need. It pointed to something. It was saying that this dead, sinful nature that we have inside of us, we need this thing removed. Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 10, verse 6, he said, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. You see, our problem, it's not external. It's internal. We, we don't need more lipstick on the pig. Right? Our, our problem is inside of us. See, our hearts, they want to live their own way, and that's sin. But Jesus, when you come to Christ, he gives you a new life. It's what the Bible calls the new birth or regeneration. Jesus makes you born again. You know, one of, one of my favorite uh, preachers mentioned him last week is George Whitfield. And it was said of George Whitfield that Whitfield would basically always preach the new birth. Whitfield would go around preaching essentially the same message, you must be born again. Well, one day, this guy comes up to Whitfield and he says, Whitfield, why do you always preach to people, you must be born again? And Whitfield's answer is, because you must be born again. <laughs> it's really that simple. You must be born again, and the Christian has been born again. Jesus has come. He's given you life. He's put his spirit in you. He's cut away that old heart. He's given you a new nature. Now, here's one way you know that this has happened to you. You see, if all you have is your old sinful nature, you love that you love your sin. Sin isn't a problem to you. It's just what you do. It's something, you just ignore that word. You don't care about that word. But if you have Christ's new nature in you, there's a difference. You still struggle with sin, yes, but you hate that you love your sin. And now in Christ, you have power. You can, emphasis on can, be different. You don't have to jump at your old master's voice anymore. You are no longer enslaved to sin. Christ has given you the power and the freedom to change. That's the new nature. Second is that Jesus conquered our death. This is all what Christ has done apart from us. Verse 12 says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. I want you to think back to the days when you were in school 
or maybe, maybe you're still in school. Did your teacher ever give you one of those group assignments where everyone gets the same grade regardless of who does the work? Has that ever happened to you? Right, so there's always that, you always want that overachieving kid on your team, right? Because they'll do all the work, you don't have to do anything, and then you get the good grade, right? And sorry if I did that to you, but <laughs> it worked. Here's what I want you to understand from these verses. That's, that illustration is what baptism pictures, Jesus died, he was buried, and he conquered death by the powerful working of God. And what did you contribute to that? Absolutely nothing. In fact, I've heard people say that the only thing you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. You see, in other words, we didn't do a single thing to conquer the problem of sin and death, and yet Jesus did it entirely for us. And so the question is then, well, then how do you get your name included on Christ's perfect grade, his work? Well, the answer is one word in this verse here, and that word is faith. Paul says, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. What is faith? Faith is is saving complete assurance and trust. Faith is the means by which God unites you to those saving benefits of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that faith is a total, empty-handed, complete reliance on the work of Christ. So why does does, does Paul bring up baptism then? Well, he doesn't bring up baptism because baptism saves. He doesn't bring up baptism because... that's what forgives you of your sin. No, not at all. But what does baptism do? Baptism perfectly pictures and perfectly reminds you that you have been included by faith into Jesus's accomplishments. When you are baptized, what you are declaring is that Jesus's death counted for your death. His death for sin was your death to sin. His resurrection from death then assures you of your future bodily resurrection. You see, in baptism, you are completely passive, are you not? I mean, you're trusting, you're literally come forward and you trust someone else to dunk you underwater and bring you up in time so that you don't drown, right? You are completely passive. And yet that's why baptism pictures the gospel, Someone else, understand, someone else has brought you through death. That someone is Jesus, and he did it because you believe him. Faith. Third is that Jesus canceled our debt. The end of verse 13 says, Having forgiven us all our trespasses, 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, Paul moves from regeneration to faith, and now he moves to forgiveness. Regeneration happens first, then faith, then forgiveness. All all in a sense simultaneously, but that's the order. And there's an incredible word in this verse. I want you to see it. It's a very small word. It's only three letters, but it is powerful. It is the word all. The end of verse 13, having forgiven all our trespasses, nailing it 
to the cross. You see, above the crucifix, the Romans would nail a plaque that named the crime of the one who was being crucified. Now notice, Paul's using this imagery and notice what this verse is saying. He's saying that God's record of your sin, every lie that you've ever told, every lustful look, every fit of anger, every broken law of God's, Christ took that record. That record was over your head and it had earned you death, but Christ took that record out of your way from being over your head and he put it over his head and was nailed to the cross for it. It was my sin. It was your sin if you're trusting Jesus that was above his bruised and beaten head. He took the wrath for you, all of it. I already had this in here, and then we sung the the hymn already. But the third stanza, it is well. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Is this not what these verses are talking about? My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. If you're here today and you're battling sin, maybe you're beating yourself up again and again because you keep stumbling. I want you to understand that the debt was canceled. Look at the cross. You cannot beat yourself for sin that Jesus was already beaten for. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. I love what John MacArthur said. He asked this question. He said, is there a higher authority in the universe than God? Well, answer, no. And so he says, so then, if God says you are forgiven, what authority do you have to condemn yourself? You have none. Last, fourth, Jesus condemned our enemy. Verse 15, we read, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. You see that enemy that we talked about, that one who who uses the basic fallen thinking of the world and of our evil, sinful hearts, that enemy has been disarmed. For those who trust in Jesus, Satan has become nothing more than just a paper tiger. He's like an intruder into your home that doesn't have a weapon. He's been disarmed. The cross, it took away Satan's weapon, which was death. Before raising Lazarus, listen to what Jesus declared. He said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? Jesus has triumphed over the grave, over sin, over death. For the Christian, there is absolute certainty. For the Christian, I love this. It is no longer death to die. Death brings you to life, and it is Christ's victory that assures us of that truth. And so this morning, where do you find yourself with Christ this morning? Is Jesus your all-sufficient Savior? 
You know, I sometimes hear people say, quite often actually, they say, well, with all the religions in the world, how can there be only one way to God? And my answer is this, at least there is a way. You deserve zero ways. But Jesus Christ, he is the one we never deserved, and yet he is all that we need. And so this morning, as we come to celebrate the Lord's table, as the men come forward and distribute these elements, let me ask you, has your burden been set aside at the cross? Is Jesus your all-sufficient Savior? You see, this, this table that we're about to celebrate, this table is absolutely for sinners. And yet it's for sinners who are looking to Jesus for rescue. If Christ is your sole hope for salvation, then we welcome you to join us in celebrating this table. But if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we warn you to not take these elements as you will be drinking judgment onto yourself based on the warnings of 1 Corinthians 11. Let's pray.